0: Well, thank you for that welcome, everybody. It really is uh, great to be here. Uh, let me welcome you uh, to Kingsgate. Great to see you here. And can I also say a very happy Father's Day uh, to you all, but especially to the fathers and the father figures in the room. Um, I'm a fan of Father's Day. This will be my, uh, uh, my fourth one. I now have my little boy, Jack, who's three, and Isaac, who is 14 months. And I found uh, being a father just to be a fantastic privilege, wonderful honor, lots of hard work, uh, and, of course, a great joy. Um, knowing that this message was coming up, I said to my uh, little boy, Jack, I said, uh, Jack, do you like having a daddy? And he said, um, Sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. <laughs> I said, oh, do you mind me asking, Jack? When don't you? He said, um, when you have a beard. <laughs> um, now, that would be of some concern, because he's three years old, and I've had a beard the whole of his life. Um, LAUGHTER But I know I needn't be concerned because last year for Father's Day, I was actually presented with a mug that said I was the world's greatest dad. So I figure uh, I must be getting something right. And that is what we're talking about today, the world's greatest dad. Don't worry, I'm not going to be speaking about myself for the next uh, half an hour. Uh, Because the reality is, whatever that mug says, and sorry if you received a mug or a plate which had a similar designation on it, those are Um, (laughs) mass-produced. Sorry to burst the bubble there. But whatever those things said, the reality is there's no question that world's greatest dad is God the Father himself. And I, for one, I've got a a great dad. My earthly father has been a great dad, but I know it's not the case for everybody. And I just want to say, if you've had a bad experience with a father, if you had a bad experience of uh, fatherhood, I just want to say that God is the father that you never had. This is the dad that you never had, way beyond all expectations. He really is the world's greatest dad. And to help us look at him today, the love of this wonderful father, we're going to look at one of the most loved stories that Jesus ever told, a story which Charles Dickens, who is the newer thing or two about storytelling, uh, Charles Dickens said that this was the greatest short story ever told. It's known as the parable of the prodigal son, though probably better to call it the parable of the loving father. And this story comes about because um, Jesus is speaking And the Pharisees, who were this uh, strict religious group, who were kind of a pressure group as well, they went around ensuring that everybody else behaved the way they should, etc., very much rebuking people and keeping people out and so on. They were complaining at Jesus because of the company that he kept. So Jesus was speaking, and what the Pharisees called the sinners would come around him, these rebellious people. And the Pharisees were saying, hang on, Jesus, if you're meant to be from God, you shouldn't be eating with you, You shouldn't be entertaining, you shouldn't be welcoming these people. That's all wrong. Why? Because as far as they were concerned, God would not welcome these people. They were thinking, these people are the rebellious and we're the righteous. You know, welcome us, but not these people. And what's Jesus' response? He tells this story. A story which is going to question and challenge everything they think they know about who God is, what he's like, and the kind of people that he will welcome. So please watch this.
1: Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So And is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied Who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found.
0: Well, it is a wonderful story, but we're not just looking at it as a wonderful story today. We are looking at this as an invitation, just as the father in Jesus' story invites these two sons, one rebellious, the other rather rigid, just as he invites these two sons into his house. This is a representation of a loving heavenly father inviting us into his house, and it may be that you've never accepted that invitation, Maybe you're here today as a visitor, or perhaps uh, you're, you, you've been on the fringes of things. Maybe you, you've been along to Kingsgate before. Perhaps you thought you were in the heart, Father's house one time, but you've, you've kind of been away. Well, today is an invitation to you to accept the Father's welcome into his house. Perhaps you've been along for many years and say, I'm in the Father's house. Tom, I'm already a Christian. Um, I know this loving Heavenly Father. Well, today is a chance for us to look at just how wonderful this loving Heavenly Father is. And our response, rather than coming into the house for the first time, our response will be one of appreciating the house and of praise and of worship of this wonderful, loving Father. So let's take a look then at the world's greatest dad. Let's take a look at this wonderful, loving Father. And to help us do that, I want to look at two aspects of the Father's love that we see throughout this story. And the first is this. Number one, look at the Father's long-suffering love. Can you say that for me, please? Look at the Father's long-suffering um, I came down downstairs uh, this morning and knowing that it was uh, Father's Day, I was very pleased to say my little boys had a, a, a little cake out. okay? It's not a real cake, it's a wooden cake that they got for Christmas or a birthday, and it's got these little wooden candles that they put in. But I thought, oh, isn't that sweet of them? Uh, until I noticed what they were actually doing is taking it to uh, my wife and uh, they were singing Happy Birthday to her. It is not her birthday. Um, she looked at the look on my face and she said, oh, Why don't you sing Happy Father's Day to your dad? but they refused. Um, <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I can t- I'm strong. I can take that level of rejection. Okay? But I'm not sure I could take the rejection that the son lays on the father here. Uh, it tells us the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. See, in that culture, if you had, if you were a father with two sons, then when the father died, uh, the younger son would get a third of the father's estate and the older son would get two thirds. But it was when the father died. So when the younger son says to him, I want my share of the estate now, what he's effectively saying is, I can't wait around all these years just waiting for you to die. I need it now. You're going to have to sell the land off cheap and get me all the money you can from it. He's effectively saying, I need your stuff, but I don't want you. He's rejecting a relationship with his father altogether. As one commentator on this said, he's effectively saying, I wish you were dead. It would be better off for me if I was in that situation. And this is a great dishonor. This is a great scandal. As Jesus is telling the story, the religious people looking on especially would have been scandalized by this. How could a son treat his father like this? But there's another scandal coming straight after it. It says, so he divided his property between them. Again, this would have been another scandal. A traditional Middle Eastern, a traditional Middle Eastern father in this situation at that time he should probably react to this rejection by protecting his honor and driving the son out of the house or enforcing him to stay or something along those lines, protecting his own honor. But the father doesn't. The father in this story lets the son go. He goes along with it. But why does he do that? Even though that's going to mean dishonor on himself, he's not protected his own honor. Because he knows the only alternative is to enforce the son to stay, but what kind of relationship would that be if it was just coerced? He wants the son to choose him. Or to drive him out and cut ties with him, cut him off altogether. Even though he is facing one of the worst things human beings can face, rejected love, he doesn't do either of those things. Because yes, his love has been rejected, but his love is a long-suffering love. See, to be long-suffering means that we can endure the rejections and the pains and the blows of life without just reacting in anger and cutting people off uh, altogether. And this is what the father shows here. This is a father. With a, it's not that he's callous about it or indifferent, so he doesn't mind the son going. We know that's not true. If we look at the rest of the story, when the son finally comes back to him, it tells us that the father sees the son from a long way off. How could he possibly have seen him from a long way off? Because he was looking out for him. We can always imagine this father at the end of the evening when he's sort of shutting up shop and getting all the house down because the sun's coming down. Just keeping this lonely vigil, just looking out down the road, that long, lonely road, just hoping one day to see his son returning to him. This is the love of a long suffer. And this would have been a complete shock to the Pharisees listening on. See, their view of God was ultimately that God was like this sort of strict headmaster type. He had all these rules, and if you don't keep up with the rules, then you're out. You know, perhaps there'd be a caning for you the first couple of times, but you know, this isn't a father that gives loads of chances. You'd be out. You'd be out on your ear. But Jesus is saying, no, you've got God wrong. God is not a strict headmaster who's going to throw people out the minute they break the rules. God is a loving father. I remember uh, three years ago when we uh, had our baby Jack and, uh, and we brought uh, Jack back home uh, to the flat for the very first time got him back uh, out in the hospital in the, in the evening, and he was just there in his little Moses basket. And I remember um, my wife Becky's mum and dad, Andy and Anne, were there with us. And I remember when they said, right, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get off, hope it all goes well, sort of thing. And they, they went to the door, and I can still remember them kind of going and closing the door and hearing the click of the door and in my heart thinking, don't leave us alone. <clears throat> because I was just thinking to myself, who's okayed this? You know, I'd be nervous looking after a puppy and we've just got to look after a human being. You know, when do we, we sign up for this? But the reality is we then ended up being sort of lulled into a false sense of security because actually the first night, Jack went down pretty easily and then he got up a few hours later, we did a bit of nappy changing, a bit of white noise, a bit of singing and he was back down again. And the next thing we knew about it, it was the morning. And we thought, well, oh, we needn't have worried. We're naturals. But then the night after that, it was a little bit different. OK, we, we put him down and about half an hour later, he got back up and we were thinking, OK, well, we'll do what we did the previous night, you know, nappy changing, Becky fed him, we were marching up and down with him, singing songs, saying prayers, etc. cetera. Um, but every time we tried to put him down, he just got back up. It's like one of those Weeble toys, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so we were trying and trying and the hours kept going by, you know, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, midnight, one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. And eventually we were just looking at each other thinking, oh my goodness, I did not think it was going to be this hard. You know, and we were thinking, dude, we just felt like so alone and so unqualified to deal with this. And then we realized at that moment, actually, we're not alone. We have a powerful ally, somebody who is there for us, somebody that we can speak to any hour of the day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The NHS helpline. LAUGHTER Some of you were thinking God, though, anyway, that's, yeah. Let's make a note of that for a future sermon, that's, that's good, well done. We phoned them up, and the lady on the NHS helpline said, you, you needn't worry, this happens quite often with, with newborns. What it'll be is he knows mum's there, and therefore he wants a feed, and he's not sure whether he's hungry or sleepy or whatever. So what you need to do, you need to get him away from mum. Okay, so mum, how about you just get yourself off to sleep, get a good night's sleep, and dad, you take him and get him in the room furthest away, okay, and you can get him to sleep. And I, I made a mental note to seek revenge against the NHS helpline someday. So. No, I'm only joking, but we, we did just that. So I, I took him into the living room, which in our uh, little two-bed flat at the time was the room which was furthest away from our uh, bedroom. And we uh, pushed his cot in there, and there was a sofa bed in there, so I pulled the sofa bed out, the idea being I can get him down in the cot and then I'll, I'll lie down on this uh, sofa bed. And so I started again, uh, marching up and down, singing songs, saying prayers, playing white noise, trying to get him off. And every now and again, I'd, I'd get him down, and I'd think, brilliant, I've done it. I'd lay back on the bed, and then I'd just hear this noise break the silence. So I'd pick him back up, and I was just losing my mind. Really. I was just thinking, I love you, but you're really annoying. I didn't think you'd be like... I was marching up and down with him, four o'clock, five o'clock, finally, ten to six in the morning, without a wink of sleep for me. I eventually got him down in his cot, and I could tell when I did that it was different, that he was properly away this time. And I stretched myself back on the bed and closed my eyes, and I remember thinking to myself, right now, I would rather hear burglars on the patio than I would hear my newborn baby cry, okay? In fact, I'd, l- I'd let them in, as long as they were quiet. Come on, lads, you know, take whatever you want, okay? But if you wake him, it's your responsibility, okay? Now, just in case you've got a baby on the way, John Rachel and so on, uh, I just want to say it did get easier than that. Okay? It was never quite as bad, but still, we've had three years, and Isaac came along um, just a couple of years ago. We've had three years of broken sleep and no sleep, and uh, three o'clock in the morning trips to A&E because of croup, and uh, we've had all sorts of troubles while they're awake as well. <laughs> so, you know, things like unhelpful attitudes, unholy nappies to deal with, uh, supermarket meltdowns, you name it. And the question is, you know, why do we put up with it? Why do we endure? I remember my mate Liam saying to me one time, saying, Tom, you wouldn't do it for anyone else, would you? In other words, what he was saying, is, you, know, you wouldn't do this for a work colleague or a friend or something like that. It's what you'll do for your children. A parent's love will endure for their children and, and put up with those things. We do it because we love the boys. And our love is a long-suffering love. Yeah. But if that's the long-suffering love of an imperfect couple of parents who frequently get it wrong, how much more does a perfect heavenly father have a long-suffering love for us? And that is when we reject his love, when we do things that we shouldn't do, etc., It's not just the Pharisees that have the wrong view and think God is a headmaster about to cane them or expel them from the school. Many of us feel like that about God sometimes. We view God as like this sergeant major, um, you know, shouting in the face of soldiers, uh, asking for perfection or an Ofsted inspector, having a go at teachers or something like that. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not going to tell you the parable of the Ofsted inspector and the two teachers or the sergeant major and the two soldiers. Here's a parable of the loving father and the two sons. God is a, lo- is a long-suffering Father. And I'm so glad that when I was far away, when I had my time in the far country, when I decided, I, I just want to take your stuff, Lord, and I, I just want to go away, away, far away from you and do things my own way, I'm so glad that God did not just write me off there. I'm so glad that he was a loving Father who was watching down the road thinking, when you come back, Tom, someday I'm going to be ready. And I'm so glad that now I've come back to the father and been accepted and I'm in the father's house, imperfect as I am, messing up so often as I do. You know, I said we're long-suffering parents. I'm not saying for a moment we get it right all the time. But I know that even now when I mess up, even though I'm in the father's house, he's still a long-suffering father looking over me. Look at the father's long-suffering love. That's the first thing. The second thing we can see is this. Look at the father's extravagant love. Again, can you say that with me? Look at the father's extravagant love. To be extravagant means to go beyond all expectations, to be over the top, to be without restraint. And that's the kind of thing we see here when the younger son returns to the father. So we see he goes to the far country, he wants to get away from the father, and not only has he taken his inheritance, but he squanders his inheritance You know, the modern equivalent would be he's going out partying all the time, he's clubbing, he's drinking, he's taking drugs, he's gambling, he's doing all sorts of other things. And then what happens? After a while, it all runs out. And it says there's a famine comes to the land. And you know what? It's always the same. Whenever we say to God, I don't need you anymore, I'm going to seek satisfaction somewhere else. Maybe for a moment it'll be great fun, but eventually we'll find that actually nothing will wholly satisfy us. It will all run out and we'll be left in this position of thinking, well, is this really what it's all supposed to be about? Maybe I was better off in the Father's house. That's what happened to me. You know, from my sort of late teens and into my 20s, I had looked for satisfaction in all sorts of things. I never really had considered God, God wasn't on my radar, is the way I've often put it and drinking, and smoking, and partying, and uh, books, and movies, and things, but I'd always come up short. After a while, whatever you find that you're trying to look for satisfaction, it always comes up short. It always runs out, and you get to that point where you just think, there must be more to this. I must be better off somewhere else. That's what happens to the younger son here, and actually, he's lucky that the famine comes along, because that means he finds out quicker that actually he's better off in the father's house, but he really has hit rock bottom. And we can see this in a particular detail that Jesus includes in the story. He runs out of money, runs out of friends who were presumably there when he had the money to spend, but once the money was gone, so were the friends. And then he's left destitute, so destitute that he hires himself out to a pig farmer and he's actually feeding the pigs. Now, it might be lost on us to a certain degree, but this is a Jewish man giving a story to a Jewish audience in a Jewish context. The Jewish people are not allowed to eat pig meat. In fact, we can't really get our heads around it, but the revulsion about pigs would have gone pretty deep. And Jesus is saying, this is how low the younger son got. He was actually so starving that not only was he feeding pigs, he was envying the pigs. (laughs) He wanted to eat the food that they, you know, again, this would have been another scandal in this story filled with scandals. This guy's got so low, he's hit rock bottom. And again, that happened to me. I tried all these different things and I was drinking so much, I was just making a fool of myself all the time. I really felt like I'd hit rock bottom. And if you're in that position today, I just want to tell you, for me, it was when I hit rock bottom that I looked up and I saw I had a loving Heavenly Father. And it's the same with this boy in the story. It's when he comes to his senses that he comes to the Father. It's when he realizes this stuff isn't working, surely I'd be better off going back to my Father. That's when he returns. And we can see him sort of formulate his plan of what he's going to do. It says this, I will set out <coughs> and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So you see, he's sorry. He wants to go back. He wants to apologize. But he's not just sorry. He's repentant as well. That means he wants to turn away from the things that he's got wrong. He wants to leave the far country and come back to the father's house. Essentially, he's seeking forgiveness. And if anything, if, whatever else it is, this is a wonderful story of forgiveness. This. Now, the Pharisees listening on to this, this would probably be the first time that they'd be thinking, okay, somebody in the story is at least getting something right. This boy is doing what he should be doing now. Because what he's doing is he's going to go back to the father. He's going to apologize. He's going to say, I'm not worthy to be your son. And he's going to ask if he can essentially pay off his sin, earn his forgiveness. And that was really what the Pharisees would have approved of. That was the kind of teaching of the day. That was how you got forgiveness. You essentially earned or worked off your forgiveness. See, the Pharisees, it wasn't that they were against forgiveness. That wasn't the Pharisees' problem. The Pharisees' real problem, or one of them at least, was that they were legalists. Okay, if you're new to church and you don't know that word, it meant rather than having relationship, they were all about the rules. They were all about the legalities, what the law said here and there. So basically, they'd look and say, well, can somebody be forgiven? Yes, well, the teaching of the day says it can. So yeah, okay, this is legal forgiveness according to the rules, because we have to, we'll forgive you, and you'll have to work it. You might know people like this, they forgive you, but you don't feel very forgiven, you know? They forgive you, but it doesn't feel like they. It's forgiveness that comes from a place of legalism. And essentially, that's what the boy's asking for here. You know, forgive me and I'll work it off, Father. But I want to tell you, and we see it in the story, there is a much better forgiveness. There's a forgiveness that doesn't come from a place of legalism, there's a forgiveness that comes from a place of love. And when we're forgiven from a place of love, it's entirely different. You're forgiven and you feel forgiven you feel affirmed. You know, if you get to that point where you just know you've failed, you've messed up, you want to say sorry, and somebody has that knack of forgiving you and making you feel forgiven and affirmed and accepted and restored, that's forgiveness that comes from a place of love, and it's entirely different. I heard a story not long back about the the great singer Frank, Frank Sinatra. If you haven't heard of Frank Sinatra, then that means I'm I'm getting older again. Uh, but all you need to know is that he was uh, you know, probably the, most, uh, the greatest singer of his generation. Wonderful, popular singer. And he toured right into his old age. And I heard a story about him when he was touring when he was 78 years of age. Not bad for an entertainer to still be packing him out when he's 78. And there was this guy called Tom Dreesen who was a stand-up comedian who used to open for Sinatra. He was the warm-up act. And he said that among the crew and everybody that worked with Sinatra, around that time, they were having one conversation. When is he going to retire? When is he going to hang up his microphone, so to speak? And he talked about one evening when Sinatra was playing in front of 20,000 people. And he went through his first three songs. And then he got to song number four. And Tom Dreesen was watching all this from the side of the stage. And the orchestra uh, came up, and it it was when Frank was supposed to come in, and he just blanked completely just didn't come in when he was meant to come in. And they could see him, tears in his eyes, head bowed, just saying something into his microphone, but no one could hear what he was saying until the orchestra stopped playing. One by one, the instrument started winding down until there was just this eerie quiet across the auditorium. And they could hear Sinatra, this great man of entertainment, this master of his trade, just rather pathetically whispering into his microphone, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry feeling like a total failure, like he's completely messed up. And this guy, Tom Driesen said he could see him from the side of the stage, and he was thinking, tonight's the night. This is when he's going to hang up the microphone. This is when he's going to lay it down. This is when he's going to retire. He's going to come off, and I'm going to say, it's been a great career, Mr Sinatra. Let's go home. And there he was, just feeling like a complete failure, until something happened. Somebody broke this eerie choir. A guy somewhere at the back of the auditorium stood to his feet, And he just shouted out, that's all right. You know, that's all right, Frank, because we love you. That's all right, Frank. We love you, Frank. And he just started to clap. And then around him, other people started to stand to their feet. And they were joining in with the clapping. Saying, we love you, Frank. You're our boy, Frank. That's all right, Frank, because we love you. And eventually the whole auditorium stood to its feet and were just clapping and cheering. We love you, Frank. You're a- That's okay, Frank. That's okay with us because you're our boy. And he didn't know what to do. He had tears in his eyes. And the orchestra started to go back in to the fourth song. And by the time he quietened down, he just went back into it. It was Mac the Knife, if anyone's interested. And he absolutely nailed it. And when he got to the end of the song, he went, I love you too, buddy. <laughs> Now, what's that? That's not legalistic forgiveness. That's not them saying, oh, you're supposed to be this great entertainer. Well, fine, okay. No, no, you, you give us a refund. There were a few apologies to camera and stuff, and you'll be forgiven. You just work it off. No, no, this is forgiveness that comes from a place of compassion, from a place of love. This is forgiveness that says, that's all right. You're our boy. We accept you. That's the difference. And not only did he nail that song, he toured for another two years till he was 80 years old after that. This Tom Driesen guy said... The guy at the back that got up and said, he doesn't know, but he brought him back from the ashes that night. That's the difference being forgiven from a place of love and forgiven from a place of legalism when we feel accepted and restored and put from a place of love and compassion. The question is here, as the son returns, what forgiveness is he going to receive? Is it forgiveness that comes from legalism or forgiveness that comes from a place of love? Well, we know the story, it comes from a place of love, and not just love, but extravagant love. This father goes beyond all expectations. We see the son returning, you can almost imagine him repeating his little speech to himself. You know, did you ever do that thing where you had to go home and you knew you'd messed up and you knew your parents, you know, and you're, you're going over it, you're saying, well, you know, I got tricked into going to the party, I didn't realise it was other and so on. And he's doing this speech. He's saying to himself, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son, and you know, just bring me back as a high at hand, and so on. And then he's working his way through the village. And that one had been a bad experience because the villagers around him know the disgrace and dishonour he's brought on the community. And perhaps they're going to heap scorn on him. But he doesn't have to feel any of that. Because out of nowhere, he sees his father just hurtling towards him. And he falls down upon him. and He's kissing him. And he's showing this incredible, extravagant love and affection. And he starts going into his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven. And I'm no longer against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called you. And he can't even finish the speech. His father says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring down the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Because my son who was dead is alive. He was lost and he's found. This is forgiveness that comes from extravagant love. He says, put the the robe on him, the best robe from the house to cover his shameful dirtiness. Put a ring on his finger, probably the family signet ring sandals on his feet. Only the family members wore shoes. Do you get it? The son is saying, I've sinned against you. And the father is saying, I know, but let's cover you up. The son is saying, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father is saying, you're back in the family. doesn't even have time to get the speech out. He, can't, he doesn't even mention the bit about working it off. He can't because the father just says, quick. He can't forgive him fast enough. Beyond all expectation, it comes from a place of extravagant love. He doesn't want to hear about him. Working it off, he just wants to have a party. (laughs) And I tell you today, wherever you've got to, however far off you think, if you'll come back to the Father, you'll be welcomed into his house with opened arms. And this very day in heaven, there'll be a party for you. This is what it felt like for me. I remember coming back and when I got to the point that I realised God was real and he had this perfect standard and I didn't live up to it and so on, I remember feeling like, oh my goodness, I I need this forgiveness. Forgiveness. But it wasn't just that I felt I was forgiven in a legalistic sense, that I'd beaten the rap, that I wasn't going to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. No, I felt forgiven. I felt accepted. I felt affirmed. I felt love. It came from a place of compassion. And one of the biggest things for me, because the way I've been living and just the shame and guilt I felt, I felt covered and restored. I felt like my dignity had been restored. This is the extravagant love of the Father. And they're having a party. And the fattened calf, that was his one job, right? To be fattened up, ready for a special occasion. Mainly, they just ate vegetables then. So this is a real special occasion. And the fattened calf could probably feed like 200 people. So the whole village were there having this party. Everybody is enjoying himself. The father said, tonight we're going to party like it's AD 99. It's a good joke. Google that when you get home if you didn't get it. I'll forgive you if you didn't get it. And everybody's happy. Not quite everybody. There are two people in this story that end up unhappy. One is the fattened calf. <laughs> and the other is the older brother. He comes in from the field and he sees this party is going on. And how should he react? He finds out that it's because his younger brother's come home and his father's forgiven him and they're celebrating and having a party. He should be like, my brother's back. But he doesn't. He gets in a sulk about it. And he actually refuses to come in. And this, I mean, very often when people look at this story, they kind of think, well, the elder brother's problem, he was just a bit too rigid, a bit too rules-based. He just needed to chill out a bit. That's not true. His attitude is all wrong. It's completely wrong. And yet still, the father's love towards him is extravagant. In a quieter way, a more tender way, a less demonstrative way, but the father still goes out to him and goes beyond all expectations. And his father entreats him to come in. But he answered his father, look... All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You notice this is all wrong. The younger son went away. He was saying, I don't want a relationship with the father. But the older son saying exactly the same thing. He doesn't want a relationship with his father. He's all rules-based. He's following the rules, but he's, he's not living in the relationship. He doesn't need his father. He's just looking at his father, not as a father, not as a loving dad, but as a command giver. And he's saying, look, you're a command giver. You're a slave driver. I slaved away all these years. I obeyed all your commands. He didn't, and yet he gets a fattened calf, and I didn't even get a goat. He's got it all wrong. Just as the younger son has rejected the father's love, in a different way, so has the older son. He's all about the rules and not about the relationship. He's self-righteous. He thinks he's earned his reward. He's doing it not because he wants to just be at the table with his dad, but rather because he wants a reward. He wants a go to whatever else it might be. And look at the wonderful, extravagant love of the father in this situation. Not only is he sweet and extravagant and going overboard with the younger son, the rebellious one, but he does so with the self-righteous one as well. He goes out to speak to him, and he says this, My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He is lost, and he is found. See how tender he is? Many people would have expected, again, because of this dishonor, he'd have brought on him just to drive the boy out of the house, but he doesn't. I mean, we can imagine the scene. It would be tense, right? You know, if, God forbid, in years to come, Isaac did something and went off and and then he came back one day and we had a party to celebrate and then Jack came back and said, you know, why are you having a party? What's going on? Well, Isaac's returned. He's, what? I've been slaving away all these years. And then he got in a mood and he he went outside and he was sulking on the swing in the garden. And my wife um, digs me in the ribs and says, right, you go out there and sort this out. (laughs) And we've invited everybody. We've got all sorts of VIPs there. You know, our bosses from work are there. Dave and Karen Smith are there. And it's entirely, entirely tense in the house. Everyone's thinking, what's going on? And I have to go out and speak to him. How am I going to go out? Am I going to go out and sit next to him and say, you get back in that house, okay? You just, you, get, you just get back in right now, okay? And you look happy, Okay? Okay, your mum's boss is here, and if you mess this up, then you're messing it up for the boss, and the boss is going to have a problem, then your mum's going to have a problem, and if your mum's got a problem, then I've got a problem. Okay? So you get back in that house. But this father doesn't do that. It's extravagant. He goes beyond all expectations. He's sweet. He's tender. He comes out to the boy, and he sits there, and he says, my son. Actually, he doesn't say my son. In the original language, it's not son, as translated in the other parts of the story that say son. It's actually child. In other words, it's like he's saying to my little boy, you know, for me, it would be to get across sort of how sweet and tender this is. It would be like me saying to Jack, go and sit next to him on the other swing and say, boy, my little boy, don't, don't be like, this. why are you talking to me like I'm some kind of slave driver? I mean, dad. You know, do you remember when we used to play in the garden and it was you, me, and Isaac, and we used to say we were best friends and, and we used to run away from King Kong and we used to go on the, the, the climbing frame and we used to sail away as quick as we pretending it was a ship. Do you remember that? you You're my little boy. Don't be like this. Don't talk to me like I'm a slave driver. He's in that language with me. And he's your brother. Why are you saying the son of yours? He's your brother. He's back. He's back from the dead. Why do you come in? You're my little boy. I love you. Don't speak to me like that. Come in. I don't know how to get a goat, but I thought maybe I can get you a goat. I don't know. I speak to some people. It's a quieter, more tender, more sweet, less demonstrative way, but it's the same. It's still extravagant. It's beyond all expectation. It's not protecting his honor. He's saying, I don't care about that. I just want you in my house. And again, when I became a Christian, I think this was really what was happening to me. The father was drawing me in, was welcoming me into his house. I think in some ways I was a younger son. You know, I was out there, I was drinking, I was smoking, I was doing all sorts of stuff I hadn't. But I think I had a bit of self-righteousness and things and thought I was too good for God as well. I think there was a bit of both in me. And God, in his extravagant love, drew me in. Didn't bash me, didn't cut me off in his long-suffering, extravagant love. He called me into his house. And do you notice, we don't know what happened with the older son. On the video, it seems like he's coming back in. That's a bit of artistic license. The reality is, the story, this parable of parables, ends up on a cliffhanger or cliffhangers. We don't know what the response is, probably because the Pharisees are there listening and Jesus is saying, you're like an older brother. What is your response going to be? That's my question to you. What is your response going to be? Whether you think you're an older son or a younger son or a bit of both, the Father is entreating you in his sweet, long-suffering, extravagant way. Come in to his house. What are you going to say to that invitation today? Thank you for listening.